welcome members and guests to the Australian Institute of International Affairs of Western Australia to this very special event. My name is Brendan Augustine and I'm the president of the Institute. Before I go any further, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathering tonight, the Wajak people of the Noongar Nation. I acknowledge their elders, past and present, and emerging, and I thank them for their leadership and custodianship of the land on which we are gathering tonight. This is a new venue for us, uh, and we are very privileged to be offered this fantastic facility, the Forest Research Foundation. So before I go into the introduction of our speaker, can I invite the director, James? I can't pronounce that name yet. <laughs> He's going to tell us his name <laughs> and provide us a little bit of introduction on the facility and its origins. And, but before I go any further, I would like to thank him, uh, James, and, and his staff for uh, welcoming here tonight. Uh, good evening, everyone. I, too, would like to acknowledge the, the Noongar people and uh, um, elders past, present, and of course future. Um, welcome so much. Welcome to our, our special guest, uh, Brendan, and the Australian Institute um, of International Affairs. It's just an honour to host you, and I hope it's one of many more future events to, uh, to host you. Um, the Forest Research Foundation was established by Andrew and Nicola Forrest from one of Australia's largest philanthropic gifts of $130 million. It includes these two buildings here, and it is unique in not only Australia but around the world, where we aim to bring the best and brightest scholars, emerging scholars, to come here and research in Perth with a very simple mission, to make Western Australia a leading global knowledge research and creative hub. And I use the term hub specific. It's not just a location, it's not just to come, but actually create exchanges between us and other parts of the world. We have actually, what we are, we sit on top of the five universities of, uh, of Western Australia, and we have scholars who stay here, and while they stay here, they don't only do their research at their universities, but they get to intermingle and drive a number of really incredible cross-disciplinary projects. The inspiration from the Forest Foundation or the Forest Research Foundation came because Western Australia, like many economies relying on, um, on extractive industries, experiences massive boom and bust. What this foundation is about is thinking about what Western Australia should look like in 50 or 100 years' time. So it's a generational project. By the end of the year, we'll have 60 scholars or 60 researchers, most of them residing in one of these two buildings. And from here, they research everything from alternative fuels to agriculture, to dealing with plastics, to you name it, we research it. Our only theme is excellence. That's our driving theme. So it's about not, a bit, not we don't classify what we want people to research. We just want the best and the brightest to come here. So one example is for is uh, Jessica Kutzman. Jessica, Dr. Jessica Kutzman is researching DNA origami. What's DNA origami? She's literally looking at how the double helix of a DNA can be pulled apart, put back together to capture to capture viruses in bloodstreams, preparing us for the next global pandemic. We have Dr. Jacob Martin, who's sitting over there, who uh, we're lucky enough to join us, who's look is who's working with a world leading group of material physics at Curtin University to develop new insights for hydrogen production and storage. 
There are a number of other scholars here. Um, Anna Faber, who's researching plastics. Um, Dr. Sam Starko, who's looking at kelp farms. And there's other people scattered along as well from the foundation. So please get a chance to talk to them about their research. Today also marks the opening of the Wannell Hotel which is across the road um, and you know unique world leading model all the profits from the hotel will flow back into the foundation to continue scholarships so i'm really really excited to have you here and i'm excited to welcome our friends from malaysia and especially we're very keen to actually exchange uh you know, deep research ties with with malaysia so again welcome to forest hall and i'll pass you back to brendan to introduce the speaker thank you thank you very much Thank you very much, Arvanitakis. Is that great? Yeah. I, I, you know, as a, as a champion of diversity and inclusion, I feel very embarrassed that I couldn't do it first time around. Um, but you sprung it on me. I wasn't expecting James to speak, but he said he was getting so many questions about what this inst what this uh, this place was, and uh, so I didn't practice beforehand. So, but it's on me. My bad. I would like to also uh, acknowledge the presence of a fellow of the Institute and our dear, uh, dear former president, Sue Boyd, uh, who's here with us tonight. Um, Sue was uh, very important in the resuscitation of this institute. Dato uh, Siri, this institute is actually Australia's oldest, if you want, think tank, but it has a very interesting model. It's not a think tank in, in the US sense of the word. It's both a community association as well as a think tank. Mm -hmm. So it's quite unique, from a, even from a global perspective. As you can see from the membership, um, we are not limited to professionals and people who practice the trade craft of international relations. We're open to everyone, um, young, old, and middle-aged like me. <coughs> so um, we are very privileged tonight uh, as our, to have as our special guest, uh, the first event for 2023 to the Institute, uh, Dr. Suri Saifuddin Abdullah, who is visiting Perth on a private visit. So he's actually on holiday, and we're making him work on his holiday. Uh, he has agreed to be our speaker, uh, and through uh, the great co collaboration with the Consulate General of Malaysia, with Inchet Fikri, who is here tonight, we've been able to uh, host this event on short notice. It's a pop-up, so we didn't have a lot of time, but I'm so pleased to see a great gathering. A little bit of a background on Dato Sri Saifuddin. Uh, he's a member of parliament for Indra Makota uh, in the federal parliament of Malaysia, a supreme council member of Bersatu, which is a political party, six years old, which I just discovered this, mo this, afternoon, this morning. Uh, he was Minister of Foreign Affairs twice of uh, Malaysia, but prior to that, he was Minister of Communications and Multimedia and Deputy Minister of Hi Higher Education. He's a passionate um, policymaker and thinker about education, so another reason that we're here in this, in this great environment of UWA and the Forest Research uh, uh, Foundation. He uh, classifies himself as a progressive politician, which from Malaysia warms my heart deeply, who advocates new politics, youth empowerment, and integrated education. He's involved in works on sustain, uh, sustainable development goals, SDGs. We are a big mining town, Dato Sri, so we all li live and breathe SDGs. Um, he's working on the Political Financing Act of Malaysia, and he's a firm believer in political and governance reform. He's a founder of the Malaysian Women Basketball League 
and co-founder of the Malaysian University's Royal Debating Society. Before being active in politics, uh, Dr. Siri Saifuddin was president of the Malaysian Youth Council, member of the United Nations Secretary General's high-level panel on youth employment, consultant on the, on the Economic and Social Commission of, for the Asia and Pacific, ESCAP, and joint secretary of the Bosnia Action Front. He was also in a past life a passionate student activist, another common um, feature with our past president, Dr. Sue Boyd, who was the first female president of the University of WA Guild. He's authored many works, uh, in, in for this audience in particular, uh, two policy papers on change and continuity in, in foreign policy, in the foreign policy framework for New Malaysia that he wrote after the quite uh, uh, historic uh, change in government in 2018 when for the first time uh, the Malaysian uh, government was ruled by a party other than the Barisan National, or before that known as the, the National Alliance. Um, he has also written about technology, and tonight's speech he's focusing on his work, New Politics 2.0, Multiracial and Moderate Malaysian Democracy. He's also a, column, a columnist of a local Malaysian paper, Sinaharapan, uh, which is a daily. For many reasons, this event is personally very significant. Myself, I was born in Malaysia about a month uh, before the most important event of the country's political history, the May 13th. 1969 incident, um, which has impacted and continues to impact the country's political trajectory. Growing up in the years following, it was very difficult to avoid being part of the cut and thrust of Malaysian politics from family discussions and reading particularly the Star newspaper in the 1970s, which was the most radical paper at the time, uh, every morning from the age of about eight. And indeed, that exposure from that young age is probably responsible for several life decisions, including the quite remarkable opportunity to be posted by the Australian Foreign Ministry, DFAT, to the Australian High Commission in Kuala Lumpur uh, for a short but eventful stint in the second half of 1998. I think, uh, which included, Dr. Siri, a role as an observer at the first Anwar trial. Um, when the then now Prime Minister was sacked from AMNO and then arrested um, for under criminal charges. As such, the topic of Dr. Suri's talk tonight and our discussion following around the evolution of Malaysia's domestic politics and the country's foreign policy posture are questions that are both professional and are both of a professional and, and personal interest and have been for a very long time. But before I pass on to Dr. Suri, for a general audience, I did want to recap for this audience some key data points about the bilateral relationship between the two countries. And I know within the audience, we have part of the Malaysian diaspora. We have people who have worked with Malaysian companies. We have a soccer player who used to play for in the Malaysian Soccer League, uh, among other things, uh, uh, Robbie. Um, but just a few data points, right? I mean, education, close to 350,000 Malaysians have graduated from Australian Institutes of Higher Learning. That's about the population of Canberra. So James, take that in note. James is moving to Canberra in a few months to start his university education. And think about that number. Malaysia has a population of what, 30-odd million? No, 30 yeah, so 350,000 Australian graduates, 
Malaysian Australian graduates who live and work and are part of society, civil business society in, in Malaysia. The diaspora. Close to 200,000 people who live in Australia are, have, were born in Malaysia, not counting second and third generation who live in Australia born in this country, but of course share heritage from that country. And of course among those with those diasporic connections are none other than our current foreign minister, Penny Wong, and a member of parliament just across the water. If you could just look across the river, it's called a seat of Tangney. Uh, it's held by a gentleman called Sam Lim, uh, who is Malaysian-born, who had to surrender his Malaysian citizenship just before nomination day to Fikri. <laughs> and it, historically, he, he spoke Malay in parliament last year during his first speech, which I didn't think your then prime minister tweeted around the world. <laughs> um, so you, 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 you are among friends and family here in Datuk Seri. Um, travel. Before COVID, Malaysians were about the third or fourth largest group of visitors to Australia, about 300,000 arrivals uh, in the year before COVID. Um, defense. Uh, the, the Five Power Defense Agreement has been, it's actually an alliance. Uh, it's been uh, in place since 1971. But if we go back even that, if, if, even before that, during the Second World War, of course, Australian uh, military was heavily involved. A little known fact is, at the Japanese surrender, at the Japanese surrender, the Australian military became the administrators of the state of Sarawak um, uh, for a period before the British government came and took over from the Brooke dynasty. So there's very strong connections there. Um, myself, I grew up in Penang, which was across the road from a Royal Australian Air Force base uh, in Butterworth, and I had Australian neighbours growing up from that connection. Till today, RRR, the Butterworth base has, at any given time, about 200 Australian personnel based there, Army and Air Force. Um, and during the 1950s and 60s, through the emergency and through Confrontasi, which was a hot war with Indonesia, Australian troops were in the front line with Malaysian troops. Um, and then the most boring part, trade and investment, boring but very important. Malaysia is actually, actually Australia's ninth largest trade partner and second after Singapore, which Singapore is a very particular case because it's a trading hub, it's, uh, it's the second largest economic relationship in ASEAN. So Malaysia is very important to Australia, uh, notwithstanding our relative sizes. Uh, given the historic and uh, important relationships. So I'll stop there. I'll invite Dr. Suri Saifuddin Abdullah to come and talk about the evolution of politics in Malaysia. We will then progress to a little bit of a discussion where we'll talk a little bit about Dr. Suri Saifuddin's experience as a foreign minister, as an ASEAN foreign minister, and we'll try and tease out some secrets from him about how ASEAN works because it's very rare that we get a principal player uh, to, to be to, to address us and we and, and and to whom we can address some questions. Dr. Sri, the floor is yours. Thank you. Assalamu alaikum and a very good evening. Uh, thank you so much for your introduction. I I now find a prospective political secretary uh, <laughs> to campaign for me. Uh, should I run for anything in Australia? <laughs> uh, and thank you, uh, Professor uh, James. 
yeah, <laughs> for for hosting uh, this event, and thank you all uh, for coming. Um, I'm actually here uh, visiting friends, uh, Malaysians who have been staying here for many many years. Uh, my host, uh, she and her family, I think all of her children and her siblings' children and probably their children's children are studying in Australia. Um, I think she has stayed here for more than 30 years. Uh, Kamarul, who's taking photo, has been staying here for 13 years. And, and uh, Mazli, 12 years. Yeah, and, and yes, there's so many Malaysians who are study us who used to study here who used to work here and now uh, living in in Australia on a personal note I'm actually a beneficiary of your foreign office visitors program back in 20 2010 I think uh, so I spent about 10 days uh, in Canberra and in Sydney visiting people and meeting uh, many well, those days, I was Deputy Minister of Higher Education, so you can guess who I was meeting. But uh, I also went to, to visit uh, uh, one special place, I thought, and I have always been quoting this every time I talk about sports, your uh, sports council. And I understand that the sports council is managed by all former athletes, no politicians at all. You know. No royal families. <laughs> so something that Malaysia must learn if we wish to win our first ever gold medal at the Olympics. <laughs> yeah. And and yes, and I have had good relations with all of the uh, foreign secretaries uh, of uh, Australia. Penny Wong, of course, uh, but also a, quite a special relation with uh, uh, Secretary Payne, uh, simply because of the AUKUS. Uh, I thought she did a very good job in uh, explaining uh, what AUKUS is all about to all of her colleagues in the ASEAN region. Uh, she sent a good team to explain uh, to, to us, to the military, to the Navy especially, and, and she came and she made uh, a personal visit to a few ASEAN countries and at that point, we agreed that, okay, uh, we understand each other. We may have little concerns here and there. You know, sometimes uh, some Malaysians are allergic to the word nuclear. And uh, I thought uh, Secretary Payne took a lot of pain to explain to people that there is a difference between a nuclear-propelled submarine and a nuclear-armed submarine. Uh, I, I suppose I didn't do a very good job at explaining it in Malay to my uh, fellow Malaysians, but after some time, I think people people tend to understand. And why? Even though there was a little bit of a concern, uh, there were statements from my Prime Minister, even from myself, uh, I have to do my job, of course, yeah. And uh, we have ambassadors here who would, um, who would uh, understand that foreign ministers have to do certain job. We are always measured uh, in the way we do things and the words that we use. Uh, 
and and uh, yeah because uh, some Malaysians uh, don't don't seem to understand but we we resolve it very quickly and partly is because of the uh, mutual respect understanding and the the working relations uh, especially in terms of uh, or in the area of defense and this is in particular due to the fact that we have had this five nations defense agreements uh, since uh, during the second world war well officially in 1971 but we have started uh, cooperating since uh, the second world war for tonight what i plan to do is really to divide my sharing into two uh, a little bit about malaysian politics if people are interested and then probably in uh, into international relations, in particular what is happening within ASEAN with uh, some sharing on Myanmar, probably. Uh, we hold quite a record by having uh, three prime ministers uh, within five years uh, between the election of 2018 and the most recent election we have had three Prime Ministers. In 2018, for the first time, the opposition won the general election. Uh, I was Secretary General of the Opposition Coalition, Harapan, at that time, and uh, we won quite handsomely. Mahade Muhammad became Prime Minister again at the age of 90, 93. Can you imagine that? He was Prime Minister for 22 years, and then he took a sabbatical, <laughs> and then he came back, yeah. And uh, we were thinking of perhaps, yes, this is probably, if you were to refer to Huntington's theory of the double, the, the two wave, you need one wave of change and then another wave of change. So this is probably the first wave of change. A complete change. So the plan was uh, Mahade becomes Prime Minister and then he will pass the baton to Anwar Ibrahim and then uh, so on and so forth. But unfortunately it didn't happen. After 22 months uh, there was an internal problem and then we have a change of government. Mahade started with Mahade resigning and then Muhyiddin became Prime Minister the coalition that won the election in 2018 broke down and then some of us uh, went with Anwar, some of us went with Mohyuddin. 17 months later, uh, Mohyuddin lost support from uh, 15 members of parliament, so he has to resign and Ismail Sabri became the third prime minister in that term. For one year, parliament is dissolved, now Anwar is Prime Minister. And Muhyiddin and our group are now in the opposition. Within one week or two, or probably by 13th of February, because 13th of February is the opening of the new parliament by His Majesty the King, the Agong, uh, then uh, yours truly would probably be not a proper shadow minister as you understand it in Australia, but I may be 
not foreign affairs. <laughs> I, I impose my own moratorium. It's not fair for me to be, to be sitting on the other side and looking at my former officers uh, who had served me well in my two tours uh, at the foreign ministry. Now, Malaysia is a multiracial country. Election can happen every five years or slightly less because we don't have a fixed uh, system just like in Australia and in the UK and Canada. We are not following the US system, but our system is almost the same, Westminster. It's a parliamentary uh, democracy with, uh, a, with a monarch, a constitutional monarch. Uh, we have the federal and we have the state. Uh, we have, depending on which school of thoughts you belong to, we are a country of 14 states or nine states in peninsula and two regions, Sabah and Sarawak. I belong to the second, uh, I mean, I, I subscribe to the second school of thought because the original Malaysia that was formed in 1963 was formed by four sovereign entities. Uh, Malaya, which gained independence in 1957, Sarawak, and Sabah, and Singapore. Of course, then uh, Singapore left in 1965. So we are a multiracial country, about 68 to 70, maybe about 68% of the Malaysian populations are Bumi Putra, uh, translated loosely into English, means son of the soil. Uh, out of, uh, okay, that's 68%. Uh, 55-56% of Malaysians are Malay and Muslims because we are probably the only country that define the ethnic that is Malay as Muslim. So if you are Muslim, you are Malay, Malay, you are Muslim, even though in practicality it's not necessarily the same. There are Chinese who are Muslim, there are Indian who are Muslim, but a Malay is a Muslim. So you can't change your religion if you are Muslim, if you are Malay. <laughs> I mean, uh, by, by if you were to read the constitution uh, literally. We have about uh, 30 over percent of non uh, non-Malays or non-Bumiputras uh, so and the majority of them are Chinese so if you look at the total picture about 28-29% are Chinese and then the rest are uh, Indians. For the longest of time until 2018 Malaysian politics was dominated by one party it is a coalition uh, it is called Barisan National or the National Alliance. Uh, the short form is BN. BN is controlled or led by a Malay party, which is AMNO. That is the party of all of the former prime ministers before 2018. And AMNO is a very dominant force uh, in, uh, in Barisan National. The general election of 2018, I thought, is, uh, is like a milestone because it changed the configuration altogether. 
because Pakatan Harapan is a coalition without any party being the dominant uh, party. And today, uh, if I can go uh, fast forward, you have Anwar leading Pakatan Harapan, uh, mainly of two parties, which is PKR, his own party, and DAP, Democratic Action uh, Party. And none of them can, can say that they are more dominant. DAP won more, more seats, but they, they can't say they are more dominant than PKR. They form an, uh, an understanding with BN, which is left with only 30, parties, 30 MPs. Imagine there was a time when BN was holding two-third majority in the 222 parliament. They are left with 30 parties. And with the opposition, Prikata National, uh, there are three parties, but it's mainly the Islamic Party, PAS, and Basatu, the six-year-old party. Basatu means unity, uh, and uh, we are led by Muhyiddin, who was the deputy of uh, Mahadir uh, in the 2018 election, but they part ways 22 months later, Muhyiddin uh, became prime minister. I am not so, in, I mean, I, uh, I, I may, I, I, I always find it difficult sometimes to be comfortable in any of the parties that I join. Uh, in the past, including the current one, because I don't seem to be speaking the language that the majority would want me to speak on. Uh, the main topic in Malaysia now is how long can the current government last? Because Anwar went a campaign against uh, Barisan National, Barisan Whitley was a three-corner fight, you know, uh, Barisan National, uh, PH and PN. And uh, with whatever that is happening in Malaysia, if you were to, to best to, to better understand Malaysian politics, is really to read what is happening online. Unfortunately, most of it are in the Malay language. The nuances um, has to be understand from there. Then, then you will see why some people in Kuala Lumpur are now saying, "How long can the government last?" Uh, it's very difficult to explain unless you follow uh, what is happening. But that's not my interest. We were talking about this this morning uh, <clears throat> uh, in, in another meeting. The interest really is that good. Is the current configuration good for Malaysia? What happened 60 years ago or for 60 years, to my mind, is not something that is good for Malaysia. You can't have a party winning all of the elections. No, it's okay if you if you win all elections, but with one race-based party dominating that coalition, I don't think that is something that is very good. Now, what is happening now? What is happening now is you have the government enjoying 11% uh, of the Malay votes, and the opposition enjoying 54% of the Malay votes. The government enjoying 95% of the non-Malay votes. So, so that is again not, not a really not a good configuration. One of the reasons why 
the Pakatan Harapan collapsed after 22 months was because at that time, we Pakatan Harapan enjoyed only less than 30% of the support of the Malay voters. And we know from day one, uh -huh, anything can happen. You can't be a government, uh, I mean, uh, anything can happen, that, that was what it is. So now you have perhaps uh, another situation and especially so when you have Barisan National and the uh, PH coalition uh, 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 simply uh, you know it's like uh, two couples who who have never met before but somehow you know they they they, they got married yeah so <laughs> i mean you you people talk about marriage of convenience but that's not my real interest as i said earlier the real interest is really is this a good political uh, configuration for malaysia i always believe that being a multiracial country, though I don't necessarily believe in what is known as social engineering, you don't engineer uh, how people live and how people think. You want it to be as natural as possible, but we must find ways to, to get into a system uh, to strengthen institutions that can promote multiracial and moderate democracy i think that is the real the real uh you know objective uh something that i share with some of my friends from both sides of the divide uh and uh, this is something that even uh, between uh, malaysia and australia uh we have had some discussions earlier uh, uh before this many years back uh, and we, we wanted to further the discussions between think tanks and academics and the two parliaments uh, that, that at least MPs and politicians uh, start to think more on policies and how we can move forward. So that is the real challenge. Um, just, just give me a few minutes to explain uh, how dire the challenge is. We are in the opposition. Uh, we, we, uh, <laughs> the, the, the Chinese votes or the non-Malay votes that we secured in the last election was less than 5%. And we are like an all-Malay Muslim opposition, with the exception of a few. And you have Islamic party having more seats than my party. Yeah, nothing against Islam, but I'm just saying we have an Islamic party, and Islamic party do things in a in a certain way and say things in a certain way. We are just a six-year-old party, uh, very still very small in term, very uh, yeah small and weak in terms of our ground machineries or people on the ground. Uh, actually, we were, you know, quite surprised that we won um, a, a big number of seats <laughs> in the last election. Probably because people just don't like the other side, so we are thankful. But again, <laughs> but again, that's not the way. <laughs> that's no, not that's not, you know, the best way to do things, and and the best way to win is, you know, by your own strength. So no, nothing. There's no friction. We work very well. The two parties are working very well together. But then there is Gerakan. Gerakan is a multiracial party used to govern Penang as a state government for many many years. 
and then they start losing out, uh, especially their their Chinese support, and and they really have to to revive themselves and 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 do better uh, because uh, well. It, it, it doesn't have to be only Gerakan looking after the non-Malay votes. You know that, that shouldn't be the way. I mean, Bersatu, my party has a has a non-Malay wing which we need to strengthen. Uh, we have our our general uh, assembly at the end of the year, and we thought this is something that we have to do: uh, strengthen and to be more open. Uh, yes, we are still a Malay-based party, but I think we can be a, we can be much better than that. Uh, to include more non-Malays uh, into the party, in the real sense of the word. Uh, so, because of that, I think uh, uh, what we need to do in Malaysia is really to strengthen the democratic institutions, uh, parliamentary reforms, to make the parliament uh, independent. We used to have uh, the Parliamentary Act until 1964, um, so we need to bring that back. Uh, in fact, uh, we should have done this during the 22 months when we were in government, but unfortunately, we didn't do very well uh, at that time. Uh, there are some other uh, reforms, uh, law reforms, for instance. Uh, in 2018, the idea was to go away with, mandate, uh, with, with death penalty. So we put a moratorium. We wanted to amend the laws. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't manage to do it, and now the debate is like one step backward now, talking only about abolishing mandatory death penalty, which means to say death penalty is still there on the table. It's just that mandatory death penalty is going to, to be abolished. So that's about one step backward. Uh, one thing that is probably one step forward is we are now about to table the Political Financing Act, which I am on uh, on, on the committee, but more needs to be done, and, and th that is why I have encouraged my colleagues uh, to, to, to work on this one uh, quietly or behind the scenes and at times talking to our colleagues uh, in other countries, uh, especially those practicing uh, almost the same democratic system, and this is where uh, the discussion that I have had earlier this morning with the U.S. Asia Center uh, was, to my mind, very important. Malaysia and Australia, I think we enjoy very cordial relations, as mentioned by Brendan, and uh, if uh, that anecdote uh, on AUKUS uh, can be like a testimony that our relation is really warm. There are now 14,000 students, Malaysian students, studying in Australia. Uh, the biggest group of Malaysian students used to be in England and in the US, so now Australia. Uh, we like the fact that uh, Australia is looking into ASEAN more now uh, for the last 10 or 15 years, I think. Uh, and we appreciate the idea of the reverse Colombo plan. Uh, I think hundreds of Malaysian and Australian students participate in students' exchange program. Uh, there is also an interfaith uh, youth exchange uh, happening, uh, took place uh, for the starting like five or six years ago, <coughs> excuse me, uh, where uh, a few Malaysians come to Australia and vice versa and, and uh, for two or three weeks. Uh, 
mostly Muslims from Malaysia coming to Australia and non-Muslim from <coughs> Australia coming to Malaysia. I think they stay with foster parents and 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 engage in discussions and and do community work and so on and so forth. Now, <coughs> every foreign minister from Australia <coughs> and from outside ASEAN region um, that I met in the past uh, have one same complain about ASEAN is that about the most boring subject, trade. Uh, why is it that the intra-ASEAN trade is not uh, as strong as, uh, well, they are not comparing us with the EU. EU is, is something else. Yeah, It's a different ball game. But it's like everyone is expecting <clears throat> ASEAN trade to be, you know, uh, to be more cohesive uh, so that it would be easier for them uh, to talk to ASEAN rather than talking to each and every ASEAN member states. Uh, well, I, I must say that we have tried our level best, uh, but this is probably also due to the reason why ASEAN was formed. ASEAN was formed, and this is really almost like the opposite of 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 uh, of uh, the EU. Thank you. Uh, the EU was formed. No, I'm okay. So, uh, I'm all right. Yeah. Uh, the EU was formed uh, through an evolution. Yeah. Uh, ASEAN was formed by five people who sit together. I don't know what they were drinking, but uh, <laughs> surely <laughs> not as good as this. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And then they decided we should have this. And it was born out of fear. And the fear was communism. Remember the domino theory? Yeah, so ASEAN was then formed. Five countries, the founding members, uh, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, Indonesia, and Brunei. And then uh, slowly, uh, five more came and become member and I think uh, this year we should be welcoming the 11th member, Timor Leste. Yeah. Uh, well, Timor Leste was, I thought they should have been admitted like three, four years ago. Somehow ASEAN has our own ways of doing things. You know? So we were on consensus. Consensus is good, but consensus can sometimes delay things. Yeah. Anyway, we, we hope to be moving forward in terms of our own intra-trade relations, but we are enjoying uh, a lot of good relations with the EU, with Australia, New Zealand, and many other dialogue partners, as we call them. And I think uh, we must thank the Australian government uh, for their generosity. Uh, I think your Prime Minister uh, last year announced uh, some good programs uh, to to foster greater relations uh, between ASEAN and, and Australia. But we are also facing one huge 
crisis and that is the Myanmar crisis. Uh, today is the 30th of January. Uh, we are two days away before the second year of the coup that happened on the 1st of February in 2021. Aung San Suu Kyi's-led uh, party, the NLD, won. Uh, it was a landslide victory in the election uh, during the end of 2020. And just before the parliaments, uh, before parliament reopened or reconvened, then the general uh, took over. And uh, ever since that incident, uh, the Myanmar people were steadfast. They have been, uh, uh, you know, with high spirits, uh, going against the junta. Uh, thousands of clashes uh, had occurred uh, during the two years. Uh, many had died. Many has been uh, arrested in prison. Aung San Suu Kyi has now accumulated 33 years of uh, prison and uh, the president himself, uh, 12 years. Uh, well, we know what kind of uh, court, uh, what kind of trial was conducted. And, uh, but of course, prior to 2020, uh, there were other incidences. The Rohingyans fled the country uh, before 1982. The first wave, some came to Malaysia. But because of the 1982 Citizen Act, which practically strike out Rohingya as one of the ethnic groups that are considered citizens of, excuse me, Myanmar, they are called Bengalis when they are not. They are Rohingyans. Uh, I think 99% of them are Muslims. And now there are about 150,000 of them in Malaysia, 300,000 in Saudi Arabia, 1.2 million in Cox Bazar, Bangladesh, and a few hundred thousand elsewhere, including in Europe. Uh, so they fled Myanmar, not simply because of the coup. They have been running away uh, from all kinds of atrocities, even under uh, during the, even during the time of uh, when Aung San Suu Kyi was, was state councillor, and they are not very happy that uh, at the uh, international uh, ICJ, ICC, I can't remember which one, uh, but uh, Aung San Suu Kyi uh, was not really defending the Rohingyans. So there were then three factions uh, before and after the coup d'etat in 2021. The junta, the military, and then you have the pro Aung San Suu Kyi and pro democracy groups. Uh, and then you have the third group, which is the ethnic groups, including the armed groups belonging to each of the ethnic groups. There are so many of them, but four or five of them are the bigger ones who have been fighting for 70 years, some for 50 years, for whatever reason. Uh, they were always against uh, whoever was the establishment and for many many diff different reasons i have met with the nug the nucc the nug is the national unity government the government in exile i've met the foreign ministers and the other ministers more than once openly uh, of course not officially 
I think diplomats will, dif will know how to differentiate between, yes, I met him openly, but uh, not formal. <laughs> yeah. um, I've met the leaders and representations of the other ethnic groups. Sorry, the NUCC is the, N the National Unity Consultative Council. So they have a big group, the NUCC, they have the NUG as part of it, and then they have the ethnic groups, the PDF. The PDF is actually uh, People's Defense Forces, which is a new name. Uh, it's like a coalition of the four or five big ones and a few smaller ones of the armed groups, which belongs to the, the chains, the Karen, the Karenis, and, and, and what have you. Uh, I have been urging ASEAN member states to engage the NUG and the NUCC. But uh, besides me, I think only Indonesia and uh, Singapore has been engaging them. Probably not as open as I was, but they have uh, engaged them. And this year, uh, the chair of ASEAN is Indonesia. Last year was Cambodia. Next year is Laos. 2025 is Malaysia. See, we do things in a very proper way. Uh, we follow the, the, we pass the baton accordingly. <laughs> uh, so, everyone is expecting Indonesia to do more this time. And I think uh, Ibu Retno, the foreign minister, Jokowi, the president, I think they are both committed, they are both passionate on the issue, and we are very hopeful that certain things uh, will materialize. Top on the agenda is, of course, number one, to start the, well, we, we in Malaysia, we, we mooted an idea that we call the framework. The framework is to implement the five-point consensus that was agreed by the leaders of ASEAN, including the, the, the general, which unfortunately for two years, nothing really happened. But we, we need some kind of framework that has a clear end game. And the end game is to bring back democracy. Uh, we need a transition. For the transition to happen, you need to have an inclusive negotiation, which is not happening. And this is the crucial. We are hoping that Indonesia, or under the chairmanship of Indonesia, some kind of negotiation that is more inclusive, that would bring in all of the stakeholders, including primarily the NUG, the NUCC, and the other ethnic groups together. Uh, anyone who have done this before will know that this will take time and you have to be very discreet about it. You have to have a certain way of doing it, but we are really hopeful that Indonesia can, can start the ball rolling. Because otherwise, already there is civil war, it will even become worse. Because the people that I speak to from the four or five bigger groups uh, who have been fighting for more than 50 years, I think they are willing to go to the negotiation table. The younger ones are not that passionate. They are willing to fight to the death. Uh, that's not necessarily the only way out. So that is why some kind of negotiation have to start. And Indonesia, we believe, can, can do it. Uh, even if you cannot complete the whole thing, you can start it somewhere. Number two is the humanitarian assistance. 
what ASEAN has done is to come up with a task force together with the junta, but unfortunately the junta being juntas, being military people, they, they, you know, they do it in a certain way. They are not very transparent about it. But you must, uh, you know, uh, thank the NGOs, uh, those who are inside Myanmar and those who are at the borders, especially Thai and Myanmar borders. Uh, I thought they did it. They did very well, especially uh, in, in the vaccination program. So if you ask Debbie uh, from ASEAN, she's based in, 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 in Bangkok, uh, how do you manage to do it? So she told me in her ways, in her ways, like you cannot bring them across the border because uh, no one will allow you to do that. So what you do is you just tell them, can you just push your shoulder across the line so that you can? <laughs> of course, they don't do that. Yeah, but I thought the NGOs have their own ways of, of doing things. The problem is the NGOs need funding and uh, International donors do not want to give money to NGOs who work with the junta or to any programs that has the junta on board, which includes the ASEAN program. And that is why the NUG and the other groups propose an international donor forum. And they are saying, they are saying that if the UNSG, UN Secretary General's Special Envoy and the ASEAN Special Envoy can co sponsor this uh, donor, then uh, they, they are okay with it. Uh, they don't mind the junta having a part of it, but uh, they want it to be more, because they know if this is transparent, then donors will come. And I have been hearing a good of, uh, a lot of positive wipes coming from mm, many foreign ministers, though I can't quote which one, <laughs> but yes, including in this region, that this is probably one way where uh, the international community can can play a greater role on the humanitarian uh, assistance part. Next, which is very urgent, is to block the junta's idea of holding an election this year, uh, because that is their way to seek legitimacy. So they hold, they want to hold an election. But how can you have an election when you know half or more than half of the population are not going to be involved because the NUG and UC and everyone will be boycotting the, the election. So, so you can have a Saddam Hussein kind of election. Someone can be elected as president or prime minister with 99% of the votes. No, no problem. Uh, it's an election at gunpoint. So we need to block that. The international community must work together. And... On this call, uh, the international community must also stop whoever that is sending military assistance, uh, including whatever that is related to the military works, like fuel that flies the plane that bomb the people uh, in in inside uh, Myanmar. Uh, on hindsight, because of the Ukraine thing, Russia is less busy in Myanmar. I'm not saying that it's a good thing, but on hindsight. Uh, but I think China has to play a greater role uh, working with the others. Uh, China is big in terms of money when it comes to Myanmar. 
if you were to visit Napidaw, the new administrative center of Myanmar, big, beautiful building, big, white roads. You wonder who's going to use the road anyway, but big, real big. <laughs> uh, looks like China. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, we are not against any country who wants to go and invest in Myanmar. Um, go ahead. But, but we are telling China, please, uh, you need to work with us. When I say us, it's ASEAN, and uh, everyone is saying it has to be ASEAN-led. Uh, but ASEAN really have to put a lot of urgency uh, to, to our own work. And this is where I, I'm now repeating myself. We are really hopeful that uh, Indonesia, uh, while they are chairing uh, ASEAN this year, Will, will play a greater role. So those are some of my sharing for, for this evening. I would welcome if there are questions. And uh, of course, at the end of the day, I'll be looking forward to seeing Sue again. Uh, just one thing that to, we seem to be sharing uh, the same thing. Uh, she's a former ambassador. Uh, I was, I'm a former foreign minister. So, uh, uh, she write and I write, and uh, but I've not written. Well, I've only written two pieces of document on foreign policy, simply because in 2018 we came into the government and everyone was asking. So what's happened to what's going to happen to Malaysian foreign policy? For the first time, we have a change of government. Now, how do I answer that? So I thought the best way is to write about it, and I was inspired by your white paper your foreign ministry's white paper. I read it. I thought it was very nicely written. I thought of coming up with a white paper. Then then I, I said to myself, no, a white paper takes years to 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 you know to prepare. So I wrote uh, the first piece in twenty eighteen. I call it change in continuity. So the fundamentals continue, but there may be changes in certain things. For that time, we thought we will be stronger in our works <clears throat> in human rights. Uh, I managed to get the government to agree uh, that we rectify the Rome Statute. Unfortunately, then uh, we had a lot of opposition and we have to, you know, make a U-turn. Not much uh, were done during that time on human rights, but we started our own internal a uh, mini universal periodic uh, uh, review uh, every two years and a few other things. And then we had change of government, then we came back and I came back as foreign minister again post-pandemic. So I thought, okay, post-pandemic, what do we do? So I, I, I wrote another piece. Those were my only two pieces <laughs> on foreign policy I've, read, I, I've written about other things. But what Sue and I seems to agree about diplomacy is this. Can I share this? <laughs> that sometimes uh, we don't have to be so diplomatic. <laughs> because if we were to follow the general diplomatic way of doing things, sometimes you don't really get things done. So sometimes you have to push the envelope if you like. Uh, to a certain extent to get things done. And I was reading this book written by the former uh, 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 UK High Commissioner to South Africa, and then later he became UK Ambassador to the US. While he was 
in South Africa, he was instrumental in in becoming the in-between between between Thatcher and the clerk and Mandela. So he was definitely not working as a diplomat as we normally understand it. Uh, and then he was commenting on the, what Thatcher thought about diplomats. Uh, I won't share that with you. You have to read about <laughs> It's a little too much, yeah. So anyway, thank you so much. Yeah. I'd like to drink some water, but please don't go far because we're recording this for our podcast. So I'll ask the question, but if you can. So before I open up to the audience, I'm going to ask one question. We're going to have a discussion, but I'll, I'll limit myself to one question. And I'm, because you opened the way by saying we don't have to be so diplomatic, um, you're in Australia. You're in a part of Australia that's extremely dependent on China for trade with our uh, primary commodities. Um, you've been in the room with your ASEAN colleagues discussing China. You've discussed China with, for want of a better word, your Western partners, including Australia. Australia is a little bit of both. Um, where do you see China going uh, and the pressure? It's, it's an evolving story, obviously, but if you could look into a crystal ball and go, in five years' time, what would what does China and China's international relations look like? Mm -hmm. No, that's not easy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think there are there are three T's to to describe China. One is technology, and this is really China's strength, Shenzhen. Uh, 20 years ago was a fisherman's uh, village, now like a model high-tech uh, city. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know how they do it. Uh, trade, and they are going everywhere, uh, including Africa. But this started during uh, Deng Xiaoping and even before. Uh, and they they were sometimes very smart in the way they do things. For example, in Ghana, uh, before or during Deng Xiaoping, uh, they went and built uh, some government office, and uh, they brought uh, international donors, a third party, uh, to Ghana, but they send their engineers and their architects and their workers. So they stay there for maybe 18 to 20 months building those complexes, those buildings, those assets. While, while they were there, they know more people in Ghana. And after that, everything went to Chinese companies. So they were probably smart in marketing. <coughs> the other thing is the tension between China and the U.S. in particular, both in technology and in trade. Uh, to my understanding, China is simply saying, I want my rightful place as a superpower. Uh, or at least this is what they told me. Yeah. Now, can we agree with that? It's, it really remains uh, how, 
how we evaluate them as they go uh, and do certain things. But sometimes China uh, push the envelope a little too far. For instance, South China Sea uh, goes to China and also Malaysia. And there is this island called Bateng Patinggi Ali, which, in, which is in Sarawak. And uh, Fikri, our CG, was brought up there. His wife, his beautiful wife is from Sarawak. Bateng Patinggi Ali is in Sarawak waters, in Malaysian waters. But almost on a daily basis, China will send their Coast Guard boat. And I used to complain to State Councillor and Foreign Minister Wang Yi in my way of complaining. I told him, why is your Coast Guard boat so big and bigger than our Navy ship? <laughs> I mean, and, and why, why are they uh, in our waters? Yeah? They have no reason to be there. And one of my hobby as a foreign minister, and any foreign ministers from Malaysia will, will, will do the same thing, is we write protest notes to China every now and then because their Coast Guard boats enter our waters. But so far, fortunately, nothing happened. It's just their boat coming and we are keep on telling them, please go away. In five years' time, I think technology-wise, it's a real competition. Almost all of the telcos in Malaysia are using Chinese technology. I happen to be a minister in charge of communication and multimedia for 17 months. When I asked our telcos, uh, why is this so? And their answer was very simple. Look, sir, we, we want to make profit. Their technology is at par with whatever that we can find in the West, but cheaper. So I can't, as a minister, tell them, please don't use Huawei. <laughs> don't use uh, this and that. Uh, we, we, we believe in, in free trade. Yeah. So, but somehow, you know, sometimes things happen in a certain way. When we started to roll out our 5G, uh, there was an open tender to build the single highway. I mean, there is a debate whether it should be a single highway or not. But anyway, there was a tender. Huawei and Tencent joined together into the tender. The tender was conducted by our finance ministry and it was open and transparent. And Ericsson won the tender. So it's quite interesting, isn't it, that Ericsson won the tender. So of course, Huawei was not very happy, but that's how things work. Open tender, the best tender win. So uh, otherwise, uh, you know, when Ukraine war happened, uh, then you, 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 you can understand how the foreign minister of Malaysia will be more busy than ever trying to understand or trying to, to answer uh, why uh, certain things are done in a certain way. So, China is probably the biggest investor in most of ASEAN countries. They are the biggest trade partner for Malaysia. They are very huge in Vietnam. Uh, I think second in Vietnam is South Korea. Uh, so, yes, they are very big in Cambodia, in Myanmar. So, China is really a trading force and also on technology or in particular in, in technological areas in ASEAN.
so that is what it is i think for the next five years so but malaysia together with i think singapore and indonesia and thailand and of course the philippines and the philippines uh, i think we as much as possible i can't speak on behalf of the other countries i'm not very sure but these five founding members of asean i think we are quite steadfast in the fact that our foreign policy and even trading uh, remain uh, neutral that uh, we trade with whoever that wants to trade with us we of course understand and appreciate the issues faced by australia in this uh, area and my last point on that one is not really on trade it's really on cyber security i think this is where uh, lots of things we have to work on this uh, this thing at the united Nations, since 2015 uh, there is a grouping uh, they call it the government experts or something working on internet governance or something like that which includes cyber security china has came up with their counter proposals i think the eu has come up with their own proposals so the debate is still ongoing i think this is where i think australia should play uh, i i told penny uh, wong uh, when i met her that uh, and also, and also uh, our sister uh, Foreign Minister uh, from New Zealand, I think Australia and New Zealand should come on board uh, in in a more proactive ways uh, discussing cyber security. Uh, this is going to be probably, you know, I mean, I, I'm sure you know where, where I'm coming from. This is something that is of utmost importance. Within the next few years, this debate will carry on and 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 uh, we, we, we have to 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 manage this uh, because this is beyond technology this is beyond trade this is something else and if we don't do it well it's going to be very horrible yeah mm -hmm. thank you I, I saw a hand up there yeah. your question please i'm not really sure if you can talk about it but years ago there was a lot of issues with the sovereign funds and I'm just wondering what changes came about as a result of that oh the, the, are you referring to the one MDB? Yeah. So I'll just repeat the yeah. question. So the question is, um, what's happened with the fallout from the one MDB scandal? Mm. And its relation to China? Is that your question? Just no, just generally. <laughs> okay. Okay. The reason the reason I left Amno was because of the one MDB, because there was this day that uh, Naj when Najib was prime minister. He sacked uh, as deputy prime minister and another minister. He sacked the AG, and and I thought, no, this is this is something that I can't take it anymore, and so I left. But after that, we have uh, a lot of uh, court cases. Uh, you probably know that now Najib is serving a twelve years uh, imprisonment for. A portion of those issues uh, there are more he's still going to court I, I think he will be going to court for another two or three years because there are so many i mean there are so many cases uh, uh, it's the apiic the src and so he has been found guilty of a portion of that many cases uh, relating to the sovereign fund it's not related to China, 
<laughs> what was related to China is some of the project that he approved during his time. Uh, the bigger one is the ECRL, the train uh, between East Coast to the West Coast. The project is still uh, is still uh, uh, going on, but we have managed to negotiate with China as to the cost of the of the price. I think we have cut the price down to almost half, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. China? Uh, if I understand you correctly, uh, well, first, that 1MDB has no real relation with the project with China. No. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. But more generally, I guess the question is, any lessons learned from the governance of that? Oh, yeah, of course. We have to be transparent. Uh, that's the first thing. Integrity and transparency is the order of the day. And if we were to be transparent and we... Uh, take care of our governance processes well, uh, one MDB would not be there uh, in the first place. But uh, <clears throat> it happened partly, I say partly, because there are many factors behind it. It was when, when uh, Najib was the chairman of the one MDB, at the same time he was finance minister and at the same time he was prime minister. And this is now the main critique on Anwar because he is uh, supposedly a reformist prime minister, but he has also taken the position of uh, finance minister at the same time. It's two months down the road, too early to criticize him about substance, but politically, it's, it's still hot in Malaysia. <laughs> So James's question was, the barometer of trust as part of a worldwide declining in trust, how is this playing out in Malaysia for trust in politics and politicians? That's the reason why I'm speaking in Australia and not in Malaysia. <laughs> One profession that most people don't trust in Malaysia is politician. <laughs> The one that they trusted most is a doctor, if I'm not mistaken. So if you're a doctor, come to Malaysia, run for election, you win. <laughs> uh, you know, two ways of saying it. <clears throat> one is uh, we need further democratization process, uh, programs, education. Uh, some will use the term political reform. I'm okay. Uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, I'm not allergic to any terms. What is most important is we need to work on it. So parli parliamentary reform to make the parliament independent and not to, to be as it, what it is now. It is under the purview of the prime minister's department. Surely not the best way of running a parliament. Uh, you need to uh, 
divide the role of the AG and the uh, public prosecutor. I think this is now on the table. We need to come up with the Political Financing Act. Money politics is a big, big problem in Malaysia. Uh, second to corruption, but it's, that, it's corruption anyway, so yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, a new constituency delimitation uh, as and when it is possible, because the last one was in 2004. We have huge problems uh, of gerrymandering and malapportionment. Just to quote one simple example, in one state called Selangor in Peninsular Malaysia, you have a rural area where the parliament has 70,000 uh, voters. And then, you see, in each parliament, there are state seats, right? So you have another state seat. So that one is Sabak Bernam Parliament, 70,000 voters. You have a state seat called Subang Jaya, which is also 70,000. So, and, and why is my seat 129,000 voters? So uh, it's, it's so not balanced, and this is due to uh, the tourism I said earlier. Many other things that needs to be done. On the other side of it, I think we suffer from... I mean, most people talk about corruption. I thought it's bigger than that. It's decay in the system. Uh, the problem is uh, many Malaysians may don't see decay as a problem, probably because they don't see it, uh, because it's done so well. <laughs> you don't feel it. Some may think, ah, that's the way anyway. That's the Malaysian way. What to do? You know. Uh, some may say that, uh, no, there's nothing much that we can do. Some may say, Saifuddin, what are you doing? You are now my problem. I mean, trying to repair the system. So yeah, two-pronged action. Build institution and repair institution has to be done together. Uh, not very easy, uh, but I'm sure it is not that very difficult. We just have to at least uh, list down the, the low-hanging fruits. Like parliamentary reform is something that should have been done during our 22 months of administration. Legal reform, some of it uh, should have been done. Surely we can do it. Political financing is not difficult. There are lots of models uh, in Germany, even in Australia, there are some models that we can use. Uh, so we really have to come up with something within this uh, five years. Uh, hopefully we can do it. Why these five years? Because well, uh, I don't agree with Anwar as Prime Minister on many things, but give him the benefit of the doubt that he's the first Prime Minister of Malaysia who claims to be a reformist. So let's work on it. I, I used to say, I don't like, I won't bring you to dinner. I won't invite you to dinner, but I don't mind having uh, a makan, having, uh, what's the best, churros? Uh, yeah, I, I won't invite you for dinner, but let's have, uh, I, I don't mind having cappuccino with you in the morning. Yeah, so at least we, ha we have something. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Maybe a couple of final questions. Yeah. I'll get Robbie and then Sam. Sure.
This is a question from uh, Robbie Gasper, former player for Sabah, <laughs> a professional uh, soccer player from played many years in Indonesia and Malaysia. Mm. The question was, what's the uh, possibility and prospects of using sport diplomacy? And I know that Siri, you, 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 you pioneered cultural, um, uh, cultural diplomacy, diplomacy in, uh, as part of Malaysian Foreign Ministry, and mm. that is often seen as part of that. Yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, well, what do they say in diplomacy? Soft power. Cultural diplomacy includes education, cultural, and sports. Uh, it is very important, of course. Uh, you you can beat, uh, you know, when 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 Saudi Arabia beat uh, Argentina <laughs> in in the first round uh, in the first game during the World Cup. You, the players got cars, you know, as present. Uh, but presence aside, I think uh, we, we, we can build on that, definitely. Already people are working on it. Uh, but I think Malaysian, Malaysian Sports Association uh, can learn a lot from how you handle sports here. Uh, I was referring to the uh, Australian uh, Sports Council, the way you manage it, the financing is so transparent, people put money, companies put money in it, and you know exactly where the money is going. And I like the idea that uh, National Sports Association uh, got more money if you bring back more medals. Yeah, so in Malaysia, uh, probably the richest uh, sports association is uh, football, which you know better than I do, and they get probably the most uh, when it comes to government funding. And one of those least uh, getting money is uh, basketball, <laughs> which I am a fraternity of. And, uh, but I thought at SEA Games level, we brought back more gold medals than, than soccer. Mm. <laughs> uh, but yes, I think I think we should do more on on sports. Yep. Thank you, Sam. Yeah, uh, I just wanted to ask you about uh, climate change, which, as by the nature of being global, you know, requires diplomatic solutions. I guess two parts. The first question is, you know, how does how, if to any extent, is that impacting Malaysian uh, foreign relations? And second is, if I could ask you to look into your crystal ball again, you know, what's the way forward in that regard to sort of come up with some of those diplomatic solutions? Mm -hmm. So S Sam's question, uh, firstly, is uh, how does climate change feature in Malaysian diplomacy, if I can put it that way, and to do a bit of uh, predictive analysis on uh, where the climate change uh, debate and question is going. Excuse me. Thank you, Sam. Uh, for foreign policy on Malaysia, I think climate change falls under the SDG. Uh, the, uh, the, we have a specific ministry in charge of uh, environment. Um, we used to have a very passionate uh, minister uh, during the 22 months of uh, PH government. Um, unfortunately, she had to spend most of her time trying to reconcile the issue around Linus, yeah. <laughs> but she started on the no single plastic use, 
which I thought was very important. Uh, unfortunately, there was no real continuity after that, partly because of the COVID. Uh, and then, the, but but the good news is, I think the young, uh, the youth of Malaysia, they are very very uh, passionate about it. Um, I can't remember uh, now the name of the groupings. There are a few, more than one, who have been attending the COPS meetings more active than probably the government representations. Uh, uh, and and, and, and they, they are making enough noise uh, at, the, uh, at the meetings, uh, even at home. And I think the, the government is listening to them. Uh, we hope that uh, we will be doing more uh, on climate change. Uh, I must say we could have done more in the past. Uh, we used to be a net exporter of timber, so we did fall a lot of timber that become quite an issue. Uh, and this is also related to our biggest com commodity, which is palm oil. Uh, I, I, must, I must qualify by saying that yes, the first generation of palm oils were planted on green soil. We did fall uh, some or many plants, including timber, uh, to do that. But I think for the last, uh, I can't remember, but at least five or more uh, than five years, uh, or maybe more than ten years, uh, all of our palm oils are planted on uh, brown soil. So we no longer for timber for the sake of palm oil. There have been some replanting of timber, but I wish we, we can plant more. And uh, there is still one or two states, uh, one in Peninsula and one in <laughs> East Malaysia. I don't, have, I don't want to mention the name of the state, or maybe two states in East Malaysia. Very dependent on, on, on timber, but I believe they have also uh, taken the, the route to diversify and, and uh, hopefully uh, less uh, trees will be will be you know will will, will have to fall uh, in a nutshell i think uh, we are on the right track when it comes to policies uh, on uh, on environment uh, uh, namely or particularly because uh, we 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 uphold our promise uh, that we made at the 1992 rio conference that at least 50% of our land will remain green and we are like 53% green still. But more importantly is the emergence of green technology. I happen to have a friend who owns 3,000 acres in Para, and uh, he's looking for investors, anyone? Uh, <laughs> on green technology, uh, he has started with solar, solar farms and 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 uh, and sometimes this is interesting you can't just start uh, you know solar farm and whatever uh, green technology in malaysia for local consumption uh, uh, not so motivating for business so there's one farm privately owned in johor they are doing well because the uptake is from singapore so this friend of mine who owns 3,000 acres of land in Perak, I told him you have to 
you have to look beyond Malaysia. Because if you are talking about green technology, number one, it's a little expensive for now, yeah, uh, in terms of uh, investment. Yes, uh, there can be investment, but the uptake, uh, who will be consuming it? Uh, how are you going to uh, sell it? Uh, who's going to use it? I think that is very, very important. Uh, some government officers are already using solar energy. Uh, I wish uh, we can have more of it. Uh, but yeah, so on the one hand, I think we are uh, trying to improve in the way we do things with uh, our forests. And on the other hand, we are trying to expedite you know, our, our uh, entry into, we are already there, but we simply have to do more on, on green technology. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, before we uh, finish, can I invite Claire to offer the vote of thanks um, uh, to uh, Dr. Suri Saifuddin for this brilliant talk, and I'll finish up after that. So on behalf of AAA WA committee, our members and all the guests that have attended here tonight, um, I'd like to extend a heartfelt vote of thanks. Um, you've obviously had an incredible career and the insights you've shared with us here tonight are more than we could have asked for for a man who is meant to be on a holiday. <laughs> so thank you for your time. Thank you for your stories. And please accept this small token oh, of our right. gratitude. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you so much. much.